for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Uh, today you. we're going to talk about, we're going to continue our series, Birthmarks. And this series is intended to be the things that mark us upon rebirth. What should we look like? What should we be marked by? And essentially what it is, it's, a, it's the five disciplines that I think every Christian should present, that every Christian should be marked in. And so we've talked about four, three of them already. This will be the fourth one. I'll teach the final and fifth one next week. But we've talked about we need to be students of the Word. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you should be marked and known as a student of the Word. Amen? Not only a student of the Word, but you must be engaged in prayer. Not only should you also be engaged in prayer, you should be committed to fellowship. And today I'm going to talk to you that we are to be engaged in worship. That's four of the five disciplines, the birthmarks of every believer. And so I'm going to talk to you about that. And I'm going to do that out of Luke chapter 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I'll get there in just a second. So I'm talking about engaged in worship. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be engaged in worship? To be engaged means to be totally consumed by, engrossed in, occupied, and busy with whatever is necessary to accomplish a goal. What goal does the church hope to achieve? There's only one, and that is glorify God. Amen? We do that by proclaiming Jesus, by walking out the Scripture, by being obedient. But our ultimate purpose is God's ultimate purpose, and that is that He be glorified in all things. And so our lives should be engrossed in glorifying God. And we do that when we worship properly. To worship, as you know, because we just did a series several months ago about worship called Into the Deep. To worship, I whittled that definition down as best as I could, to the reverence and adoration of God. To fear God and to love him according to scripture, how he deserves to be loved. And so I should busy myself with the reverence and adoration of God to God's glory because I am in Christ Jesus. Everybody all right? I'm just trying to set a foundation. This is what we're talking about today. How do I do that? Why do I do that? When do I do that? Well, let me tell you when you don't do that. Or when you don't only do that. I hate when people say, okay, guys, we're about to start worship. And then the team comes up, and for 15 minutes, we, we sing praises to God. Can I tell you, this isn't worship. This is a part of our worship. It's a small piece of our worship. Our worship isn't just singing, although it should include singing. Psalm 96 tells us, and this is just pieces of that psalm, to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, tell of his glory, ascribe to the Lord 
glory and strength. Say among the people, the Lord reigns. We're supposed to declare and sing and proclaim the majesty of the God that we serve. But that's not all that worship is. Worship is everything. Everybody say everything. And what I mean by that is it is everything. When I come into the church, my fellowship is worship. I am engrossed in building relationships to the glory of God. My service is worship because I am engrossed in loving other people to the glory of God. My giving is worship because I am engrossed in giving provision so that God may be glorified. I do and act like Christ in my workplace so that people can come to know the Jesus that I know. Everything that we do is worship. I want to break the chain that binds our worship by saying, Stop thinking your worship starts and ends with worship music. This is a this is a modern day phenomenon and a modern day lie. Your worship has very little to do with your singing, although it does include singing. It is your whole life. You should let your feet hit the ground in the morning worshiping. You should live your life during the day worshiping, and you should go to bed at night worshiping. Because worshiping is a lifestyle for the sake of being engrossed in adoration and reverence for God to his glory. Isn't that good? And we've been called to do that. Paul essentially says that we've been called to a life of worship. Every aspect of the believer's experience should be brought before God as an act of worship. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I want you to get a hold of that. He's saying, pay attention, brothers. By the mercies of God, because mercy has been extended to you in Christ Jesus, you are to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God. Did you know you could do a holy and living sacrifice unacceptable to God? Most of us spend most of our time giving sacrifice that doesn't glorify God. We decide we're going to go do something other than, and I'm just going to use this as an example, I'm not going to go to church today. It's nice outside. I'm going to ride my motorcycle today. I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to sleep in. I stayed out too late last night. You're worshiping. You just ain't worshiping right. You're worshiping yourself. Can I ask you a question? If some random Sunday I decided not to show up, would you be mad? Like, I'm not talking about 
I told you, hey, I'm going to be on vacation in a couple weeks. I'm just talking about you showed up expecting me to worship, and I'm not here. Would you be fussy? And then right before service starts, is it, during the time when I would normally come up, we sh I shot a video in advance. And I told him, I said, put this on the screen. And it's a picture of me with my golf clubs. I don't actually own golf clubs, but imagine me with my golf clubs and I'm just leaning up against it. And I'm all, hey, guys, man, I was going to come to church today, but I woke up this morning and realized it's going to be 80 degrees outside. And, man, I thought, God will understand. I'm not a legalist. So y'all just have a good time without me. Would you be mad about that? Because you got up, you took the time, you took a shower. Well, most of y'all probably took a shower. Got dressed, drove up here, expecting to do what? To hear the word. And you expected me to deliver it to you. Y'all see what I'm getting at? I get up. I spend 8 to 10 hours, sometimes 12 to 14 hours a week per sermon. I preach two sermons a week expecting people to be here, and they don't sacrifice enough to want to show up. So worship is just expecting God expecting us to do what God has done for us. All I'm asking you to do when I say, hey, come to church on Sunday. I'd love to see you. I'm saying, be as loyal as to me and to the ministry and to God as you expect me to be to you. That's fair, right? And I'm not trying to beat on anybody. I'm just telling you. It's really hard to be not offended when you know God gave you a really good word and you worked really hard on it, the Spirit, you just know this is exactly what the Spirit wants to say. And the whole time, and this happens to me all the time, I'll be preaching or I'll be writing a sermon and somebody's face is in my head. And I was like, man, I know their situation. This will help them if they'll listen. And then they don't show up. You're doing yourself out of when you're not a person engrossed in worship. Amen? Amen? But not just in the church. All over the place. We are called to worship. Why? Because we have God living in us. And God is love. And worship is service. And so worship must be love. Because we serve people from love if we're serving them properly. Amen? And I carry the nature of God because I have the Spirit of God living in me. And the Bible, according to 1 John 4, 8, says the one who does not know God, who does not love, does not know God, for God is love. If you're not loving, if you're not manifesting love towards others, then the only reasonable reason that could be is because you don't know God because God is love. Hmm. We have to learn to engage in worship, minimizing ourselves while elevating God and others. Because as I've told you guys a thousand times, God never did anything in you that he doesn't expect to do through you. And so here we are in 10. I want to talk about how to be engaged in worship. The qualifier 
for properly engaged worship is love. In Luke 10, chapter 10, verse 25, there's a, there's a story, a historical fact story. It says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. That's Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. Would you agree? That's a great question. That's a question us we should ask ourselves more often than we do. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law and how does it read to you? So he says, you're the lawyer. You tell me. What does the law say you should do? And this is what he says. He says, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself, or and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The first thing that we have to do is understand that worship engages God first. Now, I'm not talking about worship is anything other than love because worship is manifested as love, as adoration. We've talked about that. But it's not just any kind of love. It's not phileo love, which is brotherly love. It's not eros love, which is this passionate sexual love. It's agapeos love, agape love, which is unconditional love. We're called to unconditionally love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength unconditionally, without condition, without exception, regardless of what offense we may have perceived, regardless of insert whatever your problem is. You know, I don't go to church. I don't love God because somebody did such and such. Somebody did such and such. God didn't do such and such to you. God didn't do that to you. If God's offended to you at all, it's only because you needed to be offended. And that's not called offense. That's called conviction. But we're supposed to love God with everything that we are, this unconditional love. This kind of love, this unconditional agape love is a love that binds the disciple to live in discipline. Remember I told you we're talking about disciplines over the next five weeks. You know how hard it is to discipline yourself to love God? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're like, oh, I'm a Christian. That's easy. Well, you're a liar. It's not easy. It's hard. You have to persecute your flesh. You have to pick up your cross daily. You have to be willing to die upon it. Loving God with everything that you are is not easy. But the standard or qualifier for a Christian life has never been what is easy. It's been what is commanded. 
And the command is to love with everything that you are unconditionally. Here's the problem, though. We live in a culture that's conditional. I will love you if. And if you don't do this, then I won't love you. If you meet the expectations I have of you, I will love you. But the second you step outside of those expectations, I'm not going to love you anymore. You guys know what I'm saying? You guys ever been the victim of conditional love? I have. And I'll be honest with you, I've caused other people to be the victim of my conditional love. And it's hard because the culture is conditional, and so that's what's been modeled to us. We see it everywhere. Whatever it takes to get ahead, do that. But that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is pursuing God with everything that we are. To be totally engrossed in, to be driven by love and adoration and reverence for God to the sake of his for the purpose of his glory. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Amen. When we allow our love to be conditional, we treat others the way the Jews treated Jesus. You guys are familiar with this story. I just preached it on Passover about how Jesus entered the kingdom of, or entered the capital of, or Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, enters Jerusalem. And what happened? How did he enter? He entered as a king to cheers and celebration. On the back of a mule, people were laying their jackets down. The whole city was abuzz. People were tossing palm fronds back and forth in celebration of how awesome this king of kings, this lord of lords was. Because in their mind, they thought he is going to free us from our oppressors. He's come here because he's going to lead a rebellion against these oppressors that we live under. That was their expectation. But he didn't live within their expectation or their condition. He did. His plan was to do something else. He was there to free them from their oppressor, but their spiritual oppressor, not their physical oppressor. And because he didn't meet the condition that they had for him, he went from king of king when he entered to give us Barabbas by the end of the week. And people will do you the same way. Don't meet their expectation of love, and they'll do you the same way. Well, you didn't love me right, or you hurt my feelings. God didn't give me what I wanted. I've been praying for that. Well, did you pray for it according to the word of God, according to the desires of God's heart, before the desires of your own? Did you pray in faith? Did you pray in believing in the name of Jesus? Did you pray while treating your wife right? Because if you didn't do any of those things, God's under no obligation to answer your prayer anyway. I don't know what point I was making there. That's good, though. That's the condition. God sets conditions for us. We don't set conditions for God. Our job is to love him with everything that we are. Not only, though, is love, un love conditional, it's not convenient. It's just not convenient. Love, real love. Now, eros love, 
not all that big a deal. It, it's not inconvenient. It might actually be convenient for the purpose you're using it for. This, this erotic love. But boy, that agape love, that's hard. Because you have to foster that. You have to grow in that. You have to set some personal issues of identity and perception aside to love other people well. Amen? I'm going to tell you something. that The first time I told my wife this, she was offended. And I think she may have cried a little bit. And you're going to look at me when I say it and like, you're the worst. I told my wife one time, I'd been saved maybe a couple of years. And I told her, I said, you know, I think when I married you, I didn't love you at all. Could you imagine how offensive that must have been to her? But this is what I meant, and I went on to explain. I said, but then I got saved. And I came to an understanding of what love actually is. And now, as I pursue and chase after the love that God has for me, and then pour that love he has out for me, out on you, that which I thought was love seems as though it wasn't love at all. That takes work. We've been called to a work if we've been called to love, if we've been called to worship. Amen? Jesus' love was neither conditional nor convenient for him. He loved us when we were sinners, according to Romans 5.8. He desired to take us out of our sin, so he sent Jesus, according to John 3.16. Jesus was beaten and died to redeem us according to Ephesians 1.17. Neither one of those are convenient. Through Jesus, we walk in the newness of life, according to Romans 6.3-4. We are ava- all are av- available by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2-8. And by a statement of faith, we receive grace. Romans 10.9. None of that was convenient for Jesus. But he did it anyway. You know why? Because he is love by his very nature. And he died to pour his nature into you. And because he died to pour his nature into you, we should die pouring our nature into others. By loving him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. When I say that, this is what I mean. With my heart, I love him honestly and with everything that I am, the seat of my passion. When, when people talked about the heart in Scripture, it was talking about the seat of their emotion. All of their feelings should be wrapped up in the love of God. With their soul, The soul is the only eternal piece of us. 
So I, it's saying, I should love with a view on my eternal hope. You know how much easier it would be to love Jesus if we kept a constant eye on the fact that we'll be with him someday? Not just our soul, our mind, which means we have to turn our thoughts, our embattled thoughts in our minds, filled with things that are contrary to God, and remind ourselves that God is faithful. And because God is faithful, we should be faithful. But let me tell you, it's impossible to love God without your, with your whole mind if you don't know the Word of God. You know how I ensure that my mind is cleansed, that my mind is transformed from who I was to who God wants me to be? By placing the Word of God in my head. I had a young man come to me one time. He was talking about lust. He said, I struggle with lust. And I said, preach the Word over yourself. There's a, there's a proverb that says, maybe a song, that says, I will walk through my house blamelessly. I will cast my eye on no vile thing. I said, say that. Next time you feel like doing something you ain't supposed to be doing, looking up something on the internet you ain't supposed to be looking up. Next time you checking out some chick as she's walking past, tell yourself, I cast my eye on no vile thing, and I'll walk through my house blameless. And then say it again, and then say it again, and then say it again, because I've learned one thing. It's impossible to sin and declare the word of God over your life at the same time. You know, well, just as soon as I quit saying the word of God, it pops back in there. Then don't stop saying the word of God until it stops playing back in there. God's bigger, stronger. Whoever's against you isn't going to win. Trust that the word of God can protect you, watch over you, and hold you above all the things that you struggle with. But you have to have faith that that's true. Amen? That's what it is to love God with all your mind. And then finally, with all of your strength. Literally, all your physical capacity. When fatigue and familiarity set in, you guys ever have fatigue and familiarity set in to your spiritual life? You bolster yourself, and you say, no, no, no. God's faithful. I'm going to be faithful. I love this verse. Isaiah 54, 10 says, For the mountains shall be removed, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness, my, that's God, my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. When God tells me his love is incredible for me and that his covenant will not be shaken over me, guess what I can do? I can stand with my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. I am called to love God. Worship seeks God first. But it doesn't end there. Worship then engages others. So this lawyer gives this answer, and Jesus says, you're right. Do that, and you'll believe. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? we got to ask questions of the Bible. Why, does the Bible, why didn't the Bible just say, 
the last half of that verse. Why didn't he just say, well, who's my neighbor? Because that's really what he wanted to know, right? No, that's not really what he wanted to know. That was a rhetorical question in the mind of the Jew. He was trying to justify himself. Because in the mind of the Jew, the neighbor was the person that looked like them, talked like them, acted like them, and was the same religion and believed the way that they believed. Everyone else was separated and an unbeliever. And so when he said, who is my neighbor, he meant, I know my neighbor is other Jews, and I'm loving other Jews. So he thinks he's got Jesus trapped. By saying, who's my neighbor? He's expecting Jesus to say, well, people that look like you. And he goes, oh, I'm doing that. But Jesus didn't say that. Praise God, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus started talking about the Good Samaritan. He said, let me tell you what your neighbor actually looks like. And he starts with the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to go read this story. I encourage that you do it. But this is, this is what happens. There is a Jew, presumably, because it doesn't identify him as anything else, that's walking the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, known to be a very violent stretch of road where people were robbed and beaten all the time. And in fact, that's what happened to this guy. He gets beat on, tossed into a ditch, and then a priest walks by. While he's in there dying in the ditch, this priest walks by and sees him. And the priest is all, oh. Goes the other side of the road, pretends he doesn't see him, and keeps walking. And then a Levite walks by. And he goes, oh, pretends he doesn't see him, and keeps on walking. And then a Samaritan walks by and stops. Let me tell you, this is no small thing. This is the whole point of the thing. Because the Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans were used to being victimized by the Jews. The Jews would tell you in their time that it was better to kill one Samaritan than a hundred Gentiles. Because a Samaritan, in their mind, were false worshipers. Because they had, they had interbred with the populations around them, which was against the word of God. And so they hated them which means this Samaritan would have been a victim of this Jew in a ditch's hate. But he didn't allow himself to take offense to his hate. He decided to love him anyway. The question is, why didn't his own people love him? I'll tell you why I think so. Probably a couple of small reasons. The first small reason is that they were probably thinking, man, what if this is a trap? What if he's not really hurt? What if we're about to get robbed? And so they worry about personal harm or hurt. But I think there's a bigger reason, and Pastor Rick pointed this out to me. It's the, it's the privilege of being 107 or whatever, however old he is. Got that wisdom I don't have. He said, he said, perhaps they walked past because as priests and Levites, they were more concerned with what happens inside the church than they were about the suffering of the people outside the church. Love your neighbor. Launch point, I don't want us to lose our heart for mission. We can't lose our heart for mission 
because although what happens here is horribly necessary in equipping you, it equips you to love the hurting outside the church. If I thought what we did in here didn't turn into action out there, I would stop doing what we're doing in here. This is going to shock y'all. I'm qualified to do other stuff than this. I actually gave up a job I was really good at to start doing this. And if we ever lose the heart of mission, that other thing is what I'll go back to. Because God didn't ask me to grow a church. God asked me to grow faithful people by telling them about the faithful God they serve. That's worship. Amen? So he helps him, but he doesn't just help him. He digs him out of this ditch. He cleans him up. He gives him, he gives him his mule, puts him on his mule, walks him into town, goes to an innkeeper, gives the innkeeper some money, says, take care of this guy. I'm going to be back in a couple of days. I'm going to give you more money if it needs me. If you need more money to pay for whatever his medical bills are, you just do whatever you have to do to make sure he's okay. Guys, that's loving your neighbor. Whatever it needs or whatever they need to make them okay. Regardless if they're a Jew or a Samaritan. Love your neighbor means this. Love your Muslim neighbor. Love your immigrant neighbor. Love your black neighbor. Love your addicted neighbor. Love your homosexual neighbor. Love the neighbor that has a different political affiliation than you. Because Jesus loves them. Jesus gave his life up for them, the same as he gave his life up for you. You ain't special, except that God made you special. Amen? God died for them too. Our responsibility is to worship God by loving God and loving people. Jesus ends this sermon, this talk to this lawyer by saying this. And he said, the one who showed her mercy, this is the lawyer. He said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And that's my, that's, that's my challenge to you. Go and do the same. Start with God. And what God has done in you, do to others. Worship by loving. Worship by serving. With your whole life, be engrossed in. But can I tell you, you can't do that if you don't know the love of God. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to love people like God loves people. Not if you don't love God. You're going to be in the same position that I was in with Angela when we first got married. I didn't know the love of God. I wasn't saved. So I thought I was loving her, but I wasn't. 
You can't love, you can't give something you don't have. I can't give love if I don't have love in its truest form. And I can only have love in its truest form and know that love and walk in that love and have the comfort of that love and know that that love has provided a hope and a future and an eternity for me without a relationship with Jesus. Amen.